Hello. Welcome to Why Not Both. My name is Pam Schaefer, and I'm a musician and therapist in Los Angeles. Why Not Both is all about how our multiple passions inform our identity. And this season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine and produced by Laura Studeris. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform and come spend time with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, and that is both on Instagram and on Twitter. For our season three premiere, we got to chat with writer and podcast creator Joseph Fink. You might know him from such works as Welcome to Night Vale as well as his new podcast, Our Plague Year. It was an absolute honor to get to chat with him about his work, as well as his views on art and everything that's been happening in our world. I hope that you enjoy our interview. Sorry again about everything being canceled. Uh, yeah, yeah, we wrote um, a whole show, rehearsed it, got to do it twice, and then um, theoretically it's rescheduled, but that's if you believe that anything will be open in the second half of this year, which personally I kind of don't. My cousin is an epidemiologist at Columbia um, and kind of for the last, for quite a while, he's been pretty consistent with his point of view, which is he's just like, in my professional opinion, I just don't see any way to essentially function as a society until there's a vaccine. Right, which is like 18 months. At, I mean, at the very least. At the very least. <laughs> yeah, like, optimistic. Um, yeah, it seems like there would be waves of this, essentially, until that point. Yep, um, which yeah. kind of makes a lot of what people do untenable, because, like, people can't tour in waves if they don't know when that's going to be. Restaurants can't open in waves. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, I'm pretty pessimistic on the near-term future of arts in this country because, from my point of view, uh, I don't see I don't see a lot of the arts infrastructure in this country existing in a, a year from now, unless there's a government bailout and there's not gonna be a government bailout because we just have a government that fundamentally doesn't care about art. Right. Um, you know, uh, no, several European countries have had bailouts specifically for artists and freelance workers. Right. Um, and that's n never gonna happen here. Um, and so it's not just, I mean, ar the artists themselves aren't gonna be able to do what they do any longer, but also like theaters are going to close, venues are going to close, the people that work at those places, booking agents, promoters, right, right. the entire infrastructure will go down and and then it'll take literally years um, to build that back up again. So that's kind of where my headspace has been at lately. Is that why you started the new podcast, which by the way, welcome to my podcast where we get to talk about your podcast but that seems to be kind of like the conceit of the podcast that you just started yeah there's not like a conceit because that imagines a much more organized creation process um i mean i created so the i've created this new show called our plague year um and i went from having the first idea for it to it existing in full 
in about five days. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, in this like other world um, back in, so I used to, I say used to, because I just don't really believe that's going to be possible for the next year. Um, but I was living half the year uh, up here in upstate and then half the year in LA. Mm. Um, so at the time I was in Los Angeles um, and it, everything about this story feels like it belongs in such another world, even though it was, it was about a month ago. Um, mm -hmm. But I went and saw, um, the, uh, I went to the theater with my mom. Mm -hmm. um, it's a really beautiful show, actually. It's a show I'd seen at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um, and then I saw it again. What show? Uh, it's a show called Home by a guy named Jeff. I say as a Jeff Sobel. Um, Sobel, I don't actually know how to pronounce his last name. He's a really great, I've, I've actually been seeing his theater work since I moved to New York in 2008. Mm -hmm. um, he's always done really interesting stuff, but this was such a a leap forward um, home. It's one of the best works of theater I've ever seen. Um, it's about it's about home and it's about our houses and the people who live in them over the years, the people who live in them before us and the people who will live in them after us. Mm -hmm. um, so I went and saw that and talked with my mom about everything that was going on and how scary it was. And then um, drove home uh, from Santa Monica to Atwater Village, mm -hmm. and uh, which is a bit of a drive. And That's a schlep. Uh, well done. Yep. Um, and while I was driving, I thought, what if, what about a podcast that chronicles this year and it's called My Plague Year? And then I was like, no, that's boring because it's just one point of view. What if it's a bunch of people chronicling this year and it's called Our Plague Year? Um, and so I started soliciting essays from everyone I knew, got a couple, put it together. And by that, that was a Sunday. Mm -hmm. And basically by the next Saturday, so I guess it was more like seven days, I had a completely complete episode. And then I didn't release it as a podcast for like another three days, just because it takes that long to get it registered on all the different apps. Right, right, right. right. Um, but basically as soon as, I mean, actually we jumped the gun a little bit. It was still not up on some of the apps when we released it, but um, it was a very quick turnaround. And it was basically just because I, I, this is how I react to things is I just make stuff. It's the only, right. it's kind of the only thing I know how to do. Um, this is one there's a lot of stuff I'm not good at, but podcasting is is something that that I really know how to do, and so it just it's just me trying to be useful. Well, and it's very much. I mean, it's a normal fear response. Like some people freeze and turn into essentially like a potato rotating in the microwave. But another fear response is flight, which can take the form of productivity because it's very comforting. So that makes total sense. Yeah, I don't know if this is comforting for me. I mean, especially like the, the making of it, because it's, you know, I made, um, so I opened up voice a voicemail inbox. Um, mm -hmm. And like, how many do I have right now? Out of curiosity. I mean, just hundreds in here. Oh my God. It's just like a Google voicemail box. Uh, stories from people. And I, I was kind of like, maybe I'll find something interesting in there. And very quickly like I'd barely gotten into it and I already had enough for an entire episode so I put that out the, uh, last week mm -hmm. um, and it's honestly I, I 
I think it's one of the best pieces of audio I've ever put together. It really came together amazingly. Um, I have another voicemail one coming this week, mm-hmm. but making them is just listening or not listening for the most part because it's Google Voice, so I can kind of skim the transcriptions and then listen to the ones that seem interesting. Um, but it's just over and over mm. um, these stories. And some of them are, I, you know, I try to find the ones that have something kind of um, specific about them um, or something that just uh, don't seem to be in the other stories, but a lot of them are kind of the same story and it's just people being afraid or people being sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just over and over. And it can really, really takes a lot going through that voicemail box out of you. That's exactly what I was wondering, like what it's like holding space for that. Um, yeah, it reminds me of like, um, uh, my friend John is a musician and he, he would go out in the lobby to like meet with people who came to this concert and, and just the nature of what he does, people really want to talk to him about his about their pain about their the the traumatic things that happened to them and it's really wonderful that you can be useful in that way that you can help someone with that but as a human being who has to exist in the world um sitting there and having 100 people line up and each tell you the worst thing that ever happened to them um can be a lot it can be a lot of a lot out of you I guess as a therapist and a musician, I can say, yeah, I definitely yeah. to that. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah, these voicemail things, I really try to balance. Because some of the ones are funny or not. I don't know if funny is the right word, but they're at least not bleak. You know, there's the, guy who, there's the guy who tried to make sourdough starter and it went bad on him. And he realized that he just doesn't like having a living thing depend on him. <laughs> um, there's... Uh, yeah, things like that that are just these interesting little bits of quarantine life. And so right. I try to, I really try to find that balance of, because I don't want people to like be completely driven off the edge by the show. So with both the voicemail episodes I've made so far, I try to find this balance between some fairly intense messages and some mm-hmm. that are kind of funny or just weird. Right. Well, it's interesting that prior to that, you were talking about, you know, having composed an entire live show that now you're not doing. And the fact that you were like, you pivoted so quickly from something that was created in in a way like this whole wonderful fictional world that we get to live in to now delving into then holding space for other people's stories to then create a narrative. I was like, I'm impressed by the fact that you, you did that turnaround. I mean, it's all just making stories and audio, which again, like, it's just one of the things that I really know how to do. Um, there's not a lot of them, but that's, that's one that, that at this point after almost a decade of doing it. So whether it's fiction or whether it's, it's piecing together kind of a collage of other people's stories, it's kind of the same thing of just looking for it through the, looking for the flow and the rhythm of, of the sound and the emotion. Mm-hmm. That makes sense to me. It's also, I think about what you were saying, you know, kind of like the future of the arts, like in a way, do you think that podcasting and recording are going to change in the same way that live performance is changing or where do you see the future of that going? 
Um, I mean, there's definitely a lot of people starting podcasts right now because they can't do anything else. Uh-huh. Um, you know, theater performers and musicians and all, you know. Um, the problem with that is that like most things, podcasting is not as easy as it looks. And so there's going to definitely be a rush of indie podcasts from people who maybe have never worked in audio before and don't quite know how to do that. That'll be, it's always interesting when you've been working in indie (laughs) podcasting for a long time, watching that happen. Um, I feel like it's like watching like public access television all over again. Yeah. It's just a matter of, you know, I was once somebody who you know, I didn't have a great deal of audio experience before Night Vale, but I think you just have to kind of go in with some basic respect for the form that it's not, um, it's not just like an easy thing to do at home, that it requires some actual, like, when I started, when I created Night Vale, I was listening to hours of podcasts every day. And so oh my God. it was really, I just was a huge podcast fan. That's why I did mm-hmm. it. Um, Cause I wanted to make my own. Um, and so you know, I, I I had a lot of understanding of what it should sound like, even if I had never made one. Um, I mean, it like most arts, I like my worry with the arts and with restaurants is that because they're kind of in a similar position right now. Is that um, is that only the huge chains will survive? Mm. Um, you know, Applebee's and Chili's will be fine, but all the interesting restaurants are going to be gone um, and they're not going to come back for a long time. And similarly with, I mean, with all the arts, but let's say with podcasting, there's going to be a lot mm-hmm. of interesting small podcasts that can't be made that, you know, um, I run a small independent podcast network and we've lost almost every source of income. So we're trying to make that wow. work, but I can't guarantee any, anything. Uh, meanwhile, you know, I think Spotify will be fine. Right. Um, I think Wondery will be fine. Like these, these, these companies that have so much VC money that they never need to turn a profit in a thousand years, um, they'll be fine. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, with podcasting as with most art, I worry that it's just going to solidify the monopolies um, and drive out anyone who ever, who actually needs to make a living from their work. And I'm curious if you think that it's possible for listeners and enthusiasts to help support podcasts in a way that's feasible. Or if that's not. I mean, I don't want to be completely bleak because like our fans have been wonderful. Um, You know, when we, when we went to them directly and we're like, listen, we, we lost, we lost this huge chunk of income. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you, you know, we, we also recognize that like a lot of people are losing their jobs. So there's a lot of people in a bad financial situation, but if you are in a position to donate to our Patreon, this would be the time. Um, And we had a huge surge in, in Patreon donations, hundreds of people signed on. And, and also, you know, I was kind of expecting that to be balanced a bit by a bunch of people having to leave for understandable financial reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, But weirdly, like even as the economy fell apart, um, uh, March was the, the lowest cancellation rate on our patreon in the last hour people stuck to it and so that's i mean that's really wonderful and and it gives us some chance at survival but again i keep going back to just the way i see it is that while those things are amazing and really helpful and people should do them um ultimately this is a problem too big for individuals to solve like the scale of this problem is unimaginable 
and the government needs to step in and they're not going to. Um, you know, the government passed that half-ass bill. Um, you know, le let's leave aside for a moment the individual amounts where it's like, if you have direct deposit, you might get it in like three weeks maybe. Right. If you don't, you'll get it in five months. Right. Just worth worthless. And then, you know, they you know, they had this small business payroll protection program. The idea being that if you're a small business, you can get this low interest loan to keep employees on even with a lowered income. And then if you don't lay anyone off, you can get it forgiven. Um, a they didn't do that directly, of course. They instead did it through all the the bank, the private banks. Right, right, right. Because, you know, you can't have um, a government program that doesn't ultimately just is a profiteering thing for, for, for the, banks. the private banks. Uh, but And because of that, you can only apply through a bank that you're already a customer of. Right. Um, and then, like, the banks couldn't get, the banks didn't have it together last week. Um, none of them had any ability to take the applications. Wells Fargo opened the applications this morning and within an hour announced that they had run out of money. Oh my God. The program and closed them. Um, so, so as far as I can tell, the money from that bill is gone in an hour and Congress has given itself a recess until late this month. Like there's just no... I, I genuinely think the people there who have been in power a long time and are really wealthy just don't just lack a, a complete basic understanding of how the world works. They just don't understand what is actually happening in normal people's lives because they haven't been normal people in decades. Right. right. And so how would they have any perspective? They're completely removed. Yeah. I mean, like you can get angry at the Republicans, but a lot of this stuff was Democratic initiatives too. Um, well, and a no lot one, of no one is looking out for us, not a single one. And a lot of what you're speaking to is just systematic as opposed to necessarily individuals supporting things that they enjoy when there's no structure in place to do so. I mean, yeah, that's the thing is, yeah, that there needs to be a systemic solution to these things because it is a systemic problem. You know, buying gift cards from your favorite restaurant to try and help them is is great and it's fine, but it the sad truth is it doesn't help them. It's not going to keep them in business. What's going to keep them in business is restaurants being bailed out. What's going to keep small podcast networks or pu small publishing companies or any other small arts organizations, small theaters in business is not private donations really, but a government bailout. And that government bailout I don't think is coming because we just fundamentally have a government that does not care about the arts. Right. When in turn, like, it feels like during this time, people are leaning on the arts more than ever. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the arts are incredibly important and, and, and fundamental to what a lot of people think of when they think of this country. Like when they think of this country is so fundamentally bad in so many obvious ways that when people think about what they like about this country, they think about the arts, they think about yeah the music, they think about the books, they think about the ways that art have been made in this country. It's so fundamental to the soul. It's fundamental to the only things we're saving about this country and just no one in power cares about it. I'm not sure if you've been talking to people from other countries during this time, but it is very surreal talking to people in countries where 
they do have more supports for the arts. Like my friends in Iceland were recording based on grants that they had gotten. And it's like, well, how do you get the grants? And they're like, you tell them you want money (laughs) (laughs) and they give it to you (laughs) to make art. (laughs) And I was just like, that's it. That's like the whole, and they were like, yeah, like they want you to make art. And so, and like, same thing with, they have a subsidized recording program there where right now, obviously no one can travel, but that there's a program in Iceland where they pay for part of your studio expense simply to record there because that's how much they value supporting their recording studios and their engineers. Yeah. I mean, when you're an American talking to artists in other countries, the amount of support they get is just because you get so used to what a terrible country this is for artists. It doesn't even occur to you that it's possible to do things a different way. Right. Um, you know, our, our, we have a friend, Mary, who's a musician who got just a grant from the UK government to make an album. Um, and that was the, that was like the entire thing was, you know, here's some money, make an album. Mm-hmm. Um, that would never, ever happen here. No. Uh, I and mean, yet- and then also, also like Ireland, uh, my understanding, I might be wrong about this, um, but my, as I understand it, income from artistic endeavors are, isn't taxed income. Like there's not an income tax on that. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, they just, you know, Ireland values its writers and its musicians. Well, that's so strange right now because I'm, but I have noticed that there's a lot of pressure on artists right now to create things like, you know, all those memes about all the wonderful things that were created during other plague times. And I feel like that puts undue pressure on artists to somehow be creative while we're going through this as well, while also under the extreme financial duress that we've just been talking about. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think, I don't know. I like, I'm of two minds here because I agree with that, that, yeah, I, I mean, I don't think anyone should feel pressure to be creative at any point. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a work that you should do because you want to do it. Um, at the same time, like for me, um, I don't think I would be in a good mental place if I wasn't like, right. So much of my day is scrambling, trying to figure out how to make the business work that the only thing I like is the creative work. Um, so if I didn't have that, I, would, I wouldn't have a lot going on. So like, yeah, for me, like, I mean, I have several creative projects I'm working on right now, but that's always the case kind of mm-hmm. for the last, ever, ever since Nightville blew up, I've always right. had um, four or five projects going at once and in different stages. Right. Um, I mean, well, I, I can't say I'm like being super efficient on them, but it's just nice to have them. Well, and it's, it's comforting in a strange way. Like the way that you're talking about right now, I, I very much personally at least relate to, at least at the end of the day, I can do this. And am I trying to aim for, you know, Shakespearean greatness? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Was Shakespeare that great? <laughs> We're asking the big questions here today. <laughs> I, I'm long, long um, publicly. I've long been public with my personal dislike of Shakespeare stuff. So it's that's really funny. We don't have to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh no, I've left a paper trail. Um, what are you doing in regards to the Welcome to Night Vale stuff now that the tour is off, but you did just release the book that Mara narrated? Yeah, what an exciting time to release a book. Um, 
<laughs> I mean, it's it's rough. Like we we usually do these big book tours. We had like a three week book tour scheduled, and that yeah. sells a lot of books. We also, um, you know, we're we're really good at independent bookstores. Like the people that run independent bookstores tend to like us, tend to recommend us, tend to feature us. We have a lot of our sales. You know. I think we sell way better in independent bookstores than in on like Amazon or whatever. Um, huh. I, I mean, I can tell you for a fact that, that for my last book, Alice isn't dead. Mm-hmm. The most pre-order sales of all came through my local bookstore up here, Oblong oh my God. in Rhinebeck. Um, more than, than the big chains and more than, than Amazon. Um, and all of those places are closed um, or mail only. So, you you know, the, it's harder for them to like recommend or feature yes. books. Yes. And yeah, so it's been, it's been really tough. Like I, I it's been so tough industry wide with, for books that I think we, we are the last wave of books being released. Like um, all, all of the books released the, the week we were released did so badly compared to just the industry overall before every bookstore had to close that at this point all of the releases have been can't have been like delayed indefinitely right the publishing right. industry just doesn't want to release we we had the enjoyable time of being like kind of the test cases and then the publishing industry was like oh that didn't work oh god um, and it's it's it really sucks you know there's there's not like another side to that it just really sucks because we've been working on this book since 2016 yeah. Um, I think it's the best thing we've ever written. I was so proud of it. Um, I've been waiting for four years for people to read it. Um, and then it's just um maybe, you know, maybe it'll there'll be a resurgence after this is over. We can kind of kind of do a, a like relaunch and try to make up some of the book tour, but but it does have this feeling that like this book that I was so proud of has just disappeared into this moment in history. Wow. Yeah, because I was thinking about that because I, I probably wore it to go pick up the book. Like Mara very kindly was sharing some of it with me and I want to download. I just figured out how to get Amazon Kindle to work on my computer um, because clearly I am excellent at technology. Uh, but then I can listen to it. But normally I would be going to Stories Bookstore or to Skylights. Like those are the two places where normally I would go and pick up your book. Um, and I th- are either of them because like our local bookstore is still mailing you can still buy and they'll mail I don't know if, if any of the LA you know I should check that. on that because I was reading that you somehow, should people yeah. really should do that if they're buying books I, that's kind of I guess my biggest message besides the government should bail out artists is um, buy from your local bookstore if they're mailing yeah I should check there are a few that were doing um I don't remember where was I reading about it? They were doing like curbside pickup essentially that you could order what books you wanted and like do a very like seemingly illicit book exchange. Um, And I'd be down for that. I would totally drive to stories to do that. I miss like browsing the shelves of stories and looking at what people were recommending and reading on the patio and walking down to the lake. And like, that was one of my favorite kind of like Friday rituals was like, because usually I try to limit myself to two books a week because I know that logically, otherwise then I would just spend my whole time reading um, and not actually do anything else. (laughs) Um, But Fridays I was allowed to get a new book or two. Um, And so I really at least rely on 
bookstore recommendations, random recommendations from friends, things that I see when I'm just browsing. And so I should check in with them, see what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, that was every Sunday when we were in New York, we'd do that, uh, we'd go into Rhinebeck and get some lunch and then go to Oblong, um, which, yeah, it, it it was this kind of thing of we we moved to this, this fairly rural New York area and then stumbled on the fact that our local bookstore is one of the best independent bookstores I've been to in the country. It's just a really well-run, beautiful bookstore, nicely stocked. They, the, the books they feature are interesting. The people that run it are, are really nice. Um, and I hope they can still, ex- I mean, they're, they're, they're still shipping books, but you know, there's no guarantees. Um, it'd be a huge tragedy if Oblong Books wasn't there when this is over. Can people who aren't from the area order from Oblong Books? Are they are they shipping? Yes, they can. Them? And in fact, I think they they still have um, signed copies of our books there. Um, if you want to buy a signed copy of our books, um, please do buy it from Oblong. They they have them. Heck yeah, yeah. Because I was thinking about when you were talking about the people that are writing into you now and the people who are sending you voicemails now. Um, did people do that also in regards to Welcome to Nightville? Obviously, it has a very different tenor now, but did people have that same kind of confessional thing that they did to John, who you mentioned? Did they do that to you as well? Yeah, yes. I mean, we didn't have like a voicemail they could call in, but we like when when we did signing lines, people um, people found a lot of comfort. Uh, I would say especially like the the story the story we would hear a lot, you know, uh, sometimes people would give us letters in line because they didn't, they either didn't want to take up the time of telling a long story or they just weren't the kind of people that felt comfortable telling it in person. And yeah. we started calling it because the letter, because we, we always knew what it said. It was always very sweet. And it was just like, basically over and over the story we heard was, was people struggling, you know, especially we had a, it's kind of gotten more varied, but especially early on, we had a fairly young audience, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people in their teens and twenties. And there was just a lot of people struggling with a, their queer identity and, and understanding themselves. And, and mm-hmm. a lot of them f- kind of found the ability to, to understand that through Night Vale and, and could kind of move, move on with, with it from there. Um, and that's a story we heard over and over again. And it's, um, it's really gratifying to have something you make be useful. Like I say that a lot, but I really do mean it. Like I think yeah. the the absolute peak for me, like the thing I most want out of the art I make is just that it be concretely useful to someone in their life. That it that it help them in some specific way because there's so much art that has done that for me. Mm. Art that has gotten me through moments or that has made me realize things. Um, and I think art can do that. People think of art as, I don't know, like escapism with, although that is useful or, or like general edification or, or, but I think art can be really useful in very specific ways, as much as like a hammer or a, a chair, like mm-hmm. it can do something in your life. Um, that's very specific and real. Well, and you were speaking to kind of the universality of a lot of the emotions that were coming up in the voicemails that you're getting right now, that it sounds like even though sometimes the content was slightly different, that there were a lot of like universal themes that were coming up, which it sounds like you really tapped into kind of a universal theme with Night Vale. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not it's not that hard to tap into a universal theme with this current project because I right. mean, the, the theme is everyone's home and afraid. Yeah, um, and that's kind of it. And and there's various reasons for that. Some people have relatives that are sick. Some people are sick themselves. Some people are poor and 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 don't know how they're going to eat. You know, next week. There's different causes for those fears, but ultimately. Um, most of us who aren't in the global elite that just kind of float float above us, most of us are going through kind of the same moment right now. Right. And what I'm wondering, what have people said in reaction to listening to the podcast? I've been in my house since I made it, so I haven't like talked to really anyone about it, but I've, I've seen like the iTunes reviews and people's tweets or whatever, and they've all been really positive that I've seen, um, and they've mostly been people just like, I don't know, I think people have found usefulness in listening to it in the same way that I find it useful to make it, which is it just provides a space to really, I think we spend a lot of our time right now trying to avoid deeply thinking about the, the bigger picture of what's going on. Like we just try mm -hmm. to make sure we're getting our work done and that we, you know, maybe are watching a fun TV show and then, making sure we wash our hands a lot and you know mm -hmm. if we get lonely we do a video chat with friends um but there's we don't really allow ourselves a lot of space to just sit with what's going on and i think making this work for me and then for people listening to it it just gives a space to really i don't know confront what's going on in a way that's not completely negative it's 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 ultimately supposed to be a bit of a communal experience you know the the tagline I've kind of come to for the show is, is it's a scary year, but it doesn't have to be scary alone. Um, and that's, that's what I'm trying to, that's, I think what people are getting out of it is allowing themselves to feel scared and sad and just completely overwhelmed for a little bit in a way that is maybe safe and contained and allows them to then get on with the rest of their life. Well, yeah, because sometimes it's interesting that you said that about, you know, that we're not alone in it, because that's sometimes what can make those feelings seem all the more threatening is if you feel like either you're the only one feeling them or you're the only one that feels them to the degree that you do. But knowing that other people do in a way, conversely, can sometimes let those feelings pass. Yeah, you know, the our first episode, one of the segments was written by uh, the sci-fi writer Nisi Shaw. Um, and she said something I think a lot about a lot um, since since I made that episode, um, because I think on on our professional emails and our video chat, even our video chats with our friends, we're all trying to keep it together a bit, um, mm. and that I think can actually sometimes have this inverse thing where it feels like everyone else is okay but you, right? Because ever everyone else is acting pretty normal. Right. And, and you're like, I guess it's just me. Um, right. And Nisi, uh, I, I forget the exact wording, but she's just like, assume that everyone you talk to is under at least as much stress as you are. Um, and I think about that a lot, mm -hmm. uh, that we're all kind of in the same moment. And so just even if somebody's trying to keep it together for professional reasons or because they just don't want the conversation to be completely a downer. Um, just remembering that they're going through the same thing that you are. Yeah. 
And I, I think it's important to note that people sometimes deal with that differently. Like, like I had said earlier, like I deal with things by humor. So if I'm not laughing about something, that's when you know that something is deeply wrong, but that if I'm cracking jokes, it's because that's my way of dealing with it. And like, it's strange. I don't know if you found this, but amongst at least like my, I have a, we've been calling ourselves the quarantine gang. Um, my three friends that we've all kind of agreed to only see one another and only in their home and my home. Um, and that's it. Um, but essentially I feel like we're sometimes playing like mental health hot potato where it's like everyone gets a chance in the spotlight to have their freak out and we all support them. Then like the next person has their chance to, uh, (laughs) have a meltdown. (laughs) And it's all acknowledging that like, we're all varying degrees of not okay right now. Um, but that we can support each other in our not okayness. Yeah, my wife and I kind of had a similar, I feel like we both are doing a lot better now. There's this feeling of, uh, I guess this is our life now. And so we've just kind of gotten into the routine of it. But that first couple weeks um, was not mentally good for either of us. And, And kind of the rule we talked about is, well, let's just try to make sure that only one of us is spiraling at a time. <laughs> yes. Because if we're both spiraling, then it's really hard. But if one of us can be like, you're fine, it's okay, I'm here, then then the other one can safely spiral. And and there was like times during that first week where like one of us would be like, are you feeling okay? And be like, yeah, okay, good, because I'm not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a good rule. Yep, that was exactly like, even if I was feeling like sort of not okay, I'd kind of look around to see like what the not okayness level was of the people around me. And if there was someone like more not okay, I'd take care of them first. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. It's been weird. It's been real weird. Um, It is interesting, though, talking to another person who defaulted to creating at a time almost like flying in the face of the fact that we really don't have support for creating right now well did we ever she says looking into the distance did we though (laughs) yeah i mean i don't know like we we live in a country that's actively hostile to artists like the you know um i'm giving a lot of shit rightly so to the government right now but also like we just live in a country that culturally doesn't value artists, you know, think of, think of the fact that like, basically until you, we value money. So we value artists that make money. Right. Um, You know, I started to be valued as an artist when I wrote a New York times bestseller and, and like, I went on the Colbert show. Um, That's when like people started to be like, Oh, wow. What a, what an artist you are. But like, you know, the the like person who's writing a novel in their mornings before they go to an office job, we treat as a cultural joke, this like idea that they could be a writer. Um, and the same thing with like the, the like wannabe singer songwriter, we, until people make money in this country, right. we, we treat the fact that they make art as kind of a punchline. I think that's a brilliant way of putting it because when you're talking, I was thinking that, you know, I was just like, and you were a writer the whole time. You were a writer before you were on the Colbert Report. Like, you know, and it is very strange to me. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to even do this podcast, that your identity in America, at least, is so wrapped up with commerce that it's hard to divorce those two. 
but it's like you can be a musician or a writer simply on the dint of the fact that you make music and you write like those are the things that qualify you yeah um and i think there's i don't know like maybe it'd be interesting to hear from somebody who's lived in these places where there's more support for the arts to hear if that's quite the case or it just looks nicer from the outside (laughs) yeah there's definitely there's this it's the fucking calvinist there's this real calvinist idea of like if you get successful therefore you were good that like it's it's kind of um by by becoming successful therefore you are proving that you are always good and if you haven't gotten successful you haven't proved it or if you if you like die without ever having the big commercial success, you've therefore proved you were never good. Um, and it's such a like misunderstanding of what success is, which is it's chance. Well, like, like Night Vale, um, I have a career, for, I mean, through a series of chances. I mean, it blew up on Tumblr by mm-hmm. sheer word of mouth. I didn't know what Tumblr was. It <laughs> was completely accidental. Um, I couldn't have, I couldn't have, like choreograph that in a thousand years of trying right um and it blew up there and then um one of the early fans of night Vale, or at least people who knew what it was was john green oh yeah so yeah when we started getting all these offers he emailed being like hey don't sign anything without an agent you should talk to my agent um and that's how we ended up getting jody who's uh-huh. who's john green's agent is has been our agent um, since 2014 and and built our career for us basically right. um, when you have Jody on your side you have a career and it's just those and then similarly with uh, one of the early fans of Nightville was John Darnell of the Mountain Goats who was like mm-hmm. hey don't tour without an agent you should talk to my booking agency mm-hmm. um, and so it's just like these these strings of things that happen to fall into place. And if any of them hadn't fallen into place quite the same way, the show would have been exactly the same level of quality, but it maybe wouldn't be where it is now. Um, And that's not artistic genius. That's just, it's just luck. It's almost like this little string of Christmas lights of fellow artists that then connected you to agents that then helped you to have the infrastructure to then display the art you'd been making all along. Yeah. And you try to remember that too, you know, when I've tried with smaller podcasts that seem interesting to reach back and and try to do the same that people did for me. Um, But, you know, there's luck there too. And that those are the podcasts that I just happened to notice. And then I happen to like, right. Um, I can't say they're the most deserving. They're just the ones that I enjoy listening to. Well, and especially because you get such a flood of information, and even right now you're welcoming that flood of information for your podcast, but it seems like on a regular basis, you there's a lot of information coming in, and there's only so much that one person can filter. Yeah, and I'm not good at the world. Like, I'm not a person <laughs> who's great at schmoozing or being networking. Like, I kind of, I've always joked that like, I I sort of wish that before I had any sort of public career at all, I'd hired someone to play me in public. (laughs) I would be, I'd be kind of happiest just being at home making things and then letting someone else do. I hate doing panels. I hate doing events. I hate like, I'm just, I don't hate it. I don't, 
I, I respect that it's very lucky that I get to do those things and, and I'm, I'm, I've become pretty good at doing them. Um, I feel, I feel very comfortable sitting on a stage and talking about a book or whatever, but, mm. but it's takes a lot out of me. I, I, it, yeah. It's a lot, it's much harder work for me doing that than it is writing the book. Right. Well, it's different work energetically. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of, so what I was doing when I, the first year I was making Night Vale is I worked for um, this company called Green Mountain Energy that did, um, basically if you paid an electric bill in New York City, you were allowed to say what electric company Con Ed should get the power from. Oh. And Green, Green Mountain did like renewable energy. And so um, basically my job was I would set up a table on the street somewhere in New York and try to get people to stop and sign over their electric bill to Green Mountain. Oh, wow. Um, yep. Um, and I got paid 50 bucks to sign up, which meant that um, there was times that I paid my rent in a single five-hour shift. And there was times that I worked five hours and got paid $0, wow. um, which if you want a bleak day, <laughs> that's, a rough, that's a rough one. Um, but I, I actually, weirdly, I turned out to be pretty good at it, which I, I, I actually didn't like. I, the fact that I was good at sales ultimately I, I saw as sort of a bad judgment on my character. Um, <laughs> well, but, but you, were, you were selling something that sounds quite noble at the very least. Yeah, I did like research and it didn't seem to be a scam. Like I can't, it seemed <laughs> to be, it's, everything I said in the sales pitch, as far as I could tell from my own research was true. So I, I think I can walk away from that with a, a clean conscience. I, I mean, that was my Look, entire, I think that was why my sales technique was so effective. Is, you're probably very earnest. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know how to sell and I wasn't very good at it. So I would just kind of be like, Hey, have you seen this? And then they'd be like, what? And I just talk them through it and be like, well, if you want to sign up, it's here. And I just, <laughs> I was like the least high pressure salesman in the world. <laughs> and I think it made people feel comfortable. Like they kind of had their defenses up and it was so quiet that they right. just kind of were like, well, yeah, all right. Yeah. They're like, um, why else would this guy be telling us this unless it were true? <laughs> um, but I use, I use so much of that with book events now. Like that's, that's the tool set I go to when I have to do a panel or a book event or a signing line is I go right back to selling green energy on the street in New York. Wow. Um, it's the exact same. It is literally the same scale set. And, and people, you know, some of the actors who do signing lines who have been waiters are like, yeah, I mean, this is basically you do the same thing that you are as a waiter. Like it's a customer service job. It is. Basically. It looks, it looks very glamorous, but heart, <laughs> what you, the skill set you're using is customer service. So just, you know, try to try to kind of figure out the energy of the person and and be in the same place as them. If they're kind of excited and loud, you can be excited and loud back. But if they're kind of quiet and nervous, then you can be quiet too to kind of join them where they're at. And and it's it's all the same tools as getting people to try and sign up for green green energy. <laughs> Well, it sounds like that's what people are coming to you for when, if they're coming to your performance, they're coming to witness you do something and to join in it. But if they're coming for a signing line or if they're messaging you, they want you to share in their energy as well. And it all of a sudden becomes a two-way exchange as opposed to a one-way exchange. That is very different. Yeah, it is also the like, I don't, I don't know what they want really. Again, I'm like bad at this stuff. I, I don't personally, for instance care about autographs um like I don't need anyone's autograph and so I don't 
100% understand the value of what I'm doing when I sign an autograph, which is why I try to like, I try to find a personal moment with them because I do see a value in that of like, right. I don't, I don't know why you want my signature, but I can at least have this moment of like eye contact and saying something to you. And that feels, that feels real to me. Yeah. And maybe, um, maybe the signature is like a memento of that moment as opposed to the signature itself. It's a reminder of that moment that they had with you. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, but also like, I don't, I don't know what people want from me in that. Like there, I, it gets into like questions of like the real me, but <laughs> like, I'm not acting the way I would if I was just hanging out at home with friends. Like it's a very right. performative version of myself. So it's a personal moment in a sense, but it's also a personal moment with like kind of a character version of me because I'm, the, the, the real version of me would never sit and talk to a hundred strangers in a row. That's not something I would do in my free time. And so I was, I was going to say, it sounds like the real version of you would look at that and go, but for why? Yeah. I'm, I'm the kind of person where it's like people, people will like be like, Oh, you're moving. Oh, you're going to be in this area. You should meet this person. And I'm like, I don't know. I have enough friends. <laughs> you're like, do I really need to meet them? <laughs> I, feel, I feel like I know all of the people I need to know for my life and that's fine. <laughs> um, so yeah, it is kind of this, this like character version of me that's it's not like it's fake it's just it's sort of a performance well I was thinking about who we are on socials and who we are even in our art and I was thinking of like one of my closest friends who I met playing a show with her and I was fascinated by her social media persona because it was in some ways very extreme and now having gotten to know her it's still her but it's like amplified frequencies of her personality it's sort of like if you took a full spectrum and then picked out like two or three colors and just boosted them and that's like what her presence is like and I find that so interesting because like those are the things that she chooses to amplify and those are the things that connect with people and it almost seems similar to that where it's like is someone going to get the full you no because they're not just like hanging out in your living room with you because that would be really weird um but they're getting like these little these like blips on the spectrum yeah, I mean they're getting something like the uh, again. Like I'm not, I'm not pretending anything. I'm just, <laughs> but it's it's the same kind of energy I would bring to like performing on a stage. Ultimately, there's a real sense of like playing to an audience. Yeah, I still I still find it so funny. By the way, that you like didn't know what Tumblr was, and that Tumblr is what then brought welcome to Nightvale to everybody. I'm like that must have been like you must have been like, and then I'm on the what? <laughs> well, and then there's also this weird thing of like Tumblr had such a fall from grace and has kind of died. And yes, as, as far as I know, like again, I never, I still don't have a Tumblr. I've never had a Tumblr, so I don't really follow this. But like the first few years, kind of a, a stock line we would do is like. Yeah, Nightville was doing all right, and then Tumblr happened, and people would like cheer and they'd get excited because they were like Tumblr. Um, and then we we realized we started to do that, and like a lot of, especially the like younger fans, would just stare at us, being like, "And then what happened?" What's They're like, like, "What is that?" <laughs> <laughs> like it really is like people in their teens and even their twenties are just like, "I don't know what Tumblr is, sorry," or it's like I sort of know that name, but I don't. Okay, so I guess you did well on that site whatever yeah. that means sesta fosta killed tumblr frankly yeah um killed, killed a lot of things i was literally, gonna say people yeah i was like quite literally the livelihoods of lots of people 
Um, and yeah, it's very weird to think about life cycles of the internet. And I'm like, hmm, other things that the government doesn't support. I, I was trying to find a way to phrase like it's a kind of a similar thing, but it's a similar thing of like people who people who have jobs that other people don't think are jobs, you know? Yes. Like, and again, people who have jobs that don't think are jobs until it makes lots of money, like, you know, if a porn star gets really rich, then they kind of are like, they've kind of earned the respect by becoming wealthy. Exactly. But, but if you write novels that not a lot of people read, or if you're, you know, do cam work or whatever, that's not respectable because it doesn't make enough money to be respectable. And so it's treated, it's not, I, I can't say it's treated similarly because one is just not respected and the other is actively harmed, but there, right. there's a similar attitude of dismissal. Well, and it's completely at odds with our consumption patterns too. Yeah, exactly. Like everyone, everyone's stuck at home consuming yeah. a lot of art and a lot of porn like that's happening but, <laughs> yep <laughs> but none of the people making that shit get the respect they deserve for carrying everyone through this exactly exactly because can you imagine if someone's like well you're in quarantine but don't read any books don't listen to any music don't watch any movies don't log on to any cam sites don't you dare go on Pornhub and uh don't listen to any podcasts yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's I don't know. I don't have like a follow-up other than it seems bad and I don't like it. Um, <laughs> like otherwise we'd be left with having to take care of our sourdough starters and that apparently did not go well for one of your people. No, I just mean like the whole situation of how <laughs> uh marginalized work is treated in this country seems bad. Well, and it's, um, it's interesting that you brought a up right side there. Oh no, there's no bright side. There's there's the side that this absolutely has to change. Yeah, I look at, you know, we started this hour by talking about Jeff Sobel. Sobel, I'm sorry, Jeff, I don't, Poor Jeff. I don't know how to pronounce your last sorry, name. Um, you know, he he has consistently made work for well over 10 years that's interesting, that takes people to new places. Um you know, home is a really extraordinary work of theater. Um, it really, really makes you feel a lot of different things. And yeah, and he's not, you know, I like he's not like not a success in commercial terms. In that, like people, people definitely pay him to put out these shows. Have fairly big casts and fairly big technical requirements. And he performs. You know, he's been touring home. I think for the last four years, three or four years, to like different mm -hmm. festivals. Um, you know, he definitely, as far as theater goes, he's doing great, but he's not like a household name. I'm sure he's not rich from this, but he makes such good work. He makes yeah. work that really takes people somewhere. And how is that not successful? Right. To wrap things up, I mean, what might you say to people who are making things right now? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like I'm supposed to leave you with something hopeful, but I don't really know what's going to happen or what to do. I mean, I think that there's kind of two things. Like one is if if you know you want to make stuff, then you you do that anyway. Like right. if I wasn't making a living writing, I'd still be writing. Um, 
I just would be doing it less because I'd have to spend a lot of my time doing other things. Um, I mean, secondly, like, yeah, I don't know. I don't feel qualified to even give professional advice. Like I, I would have felt qualified two months ago because <laughs> I had some sense of how the world worked. But I think right now, I have no idea. I don't think, I, I don't think there's a person in this world who does no. um, know what's going to happen next. Um, like, I, I, I don't mean like society will end. I think things will more or less continue, but I just don't know what like the arts business side of things will look like at all um, in a, a month, even let alone a year. Um, I, I would say that like, I do think it's such an important business, even though people sometimes don't think so, that it will rebuild. Um, it will come back like theater. I said this in um, the second episode of our plague year, and it, mm -hmm. it's true. Theater has outlasted every plague that humanity has gone through. We always come back to sit in the dark and have someone tell us a story. And that'll happen again. Um, it might, you know, if it's not help for artists, it might literally take years. Um, but it won't hurt. <laughs> to have been making stuff that whole time because everything you make uh, gets you a little better at making the next thing. I think that that is excellent advice. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me on Why Not Both. I feel like this is definitely the plague year edition. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm super depressing right now, but uh, it's just kind of where my head's at. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of Why Not Both. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also come hang out with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, both on Instagram and Twitter. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print, music, and entertainment magazine and website. You can find them at www.undertheradarmag.com and feel free to support them on Patreon. Extra special thanks to our producer, Laura Studeris, who has been absolutely amazing. Thank you again, and I look forward to next week's episode. Thank <laughs> you.